So take a few minutes to make sure your mind is settled down for this class and that you have a positive, altruistic motivation to be here, to listen to this talk and understand these teachings to bring yourself closer and closer to enlightenment, the state of the Buddha, for the benefit of all other sentient beings. So we've had a few weeks break and before we stopped for the break, um, we were looking at the tenets of Madhyamaka Svatantrika and we almost finished that school. So there was just one more point in the text of Jetson Shuki Gelson um, before we move on to the next school. So this point is about definitive and interpretable sutras. Um, so this is a complicated subject. <laughs> I don't know if we, I don't think we talked about it before. It's not the lower schools like the Hinayana schools. I don't think they talk about it. It, it comes in the Mahayana uh, schools. And so basically the idea is that the Buddha taught many, many, many different things, many different sutras. And if you just look superficially at what he said in these different sutras, it sometimes looks contradictory. He says one thing in one sutra and a completely opposite thing in another sutra. And so this can be, you know, a little confusing. Um, so the, at least the Mahayana schools explain this by saying that some sutras are definitive, meaning you can take them at face value, um, and others are interpretable. You have to interpret them. However, the different Mahayana schools have different ways of determining which sutras are definitive and which sutras are interpretable. Uh, um, so um, so here we're looking at the Svatantrika explanation of this, and later we'll probably look at the Prasangika as well. And um, so that's one way of dividing sutras, definitive and interpretable. And then another way you probably heard before is in the, th the three wheels. The, they, they talk about the Buddha turning the Dharma three times. The three turnings of the wheel of Dharma. 
and um, and so these these two ways of um, dividing sutras kind of interact. So like the first turning of the wheel of Dharma, are those sutras definitive or interpretable? The second wheel, are they definitive and interpretable? And so on and so on. So this is a, the scheme here. So um, actually this, this uh, explanation of the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma that also comes in a Mahayana Sutra. I don't think it's in the Tara, the Pali or the Theravada tradition. And so this, this the Sutra that's the source of that is the Samdhi Nirmochana Sutra, or translated as Sutra Unraveling the Thought. You've heard of that before. So it's in that Sutra that, it, that the Buddha himself is actually talking about these three different turnings of the wheel of Dharma. So does anyone remember anything about the first turning of the wheel of Dharma? Where did that happen and what did the Buddha teach? Yeah, so it started, first turning of the wheel of Dharma started in Sarnath, which is where the Buddha first started teaching gave his first teaching of the Dharma, and he mainly talked about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, and that those teachings are mainly meant for shravakas or hearers, um, those disciples who wish to attain nirvana, um, to liberate themselves from samsara. And he did teach selflessness in the, in that, in the first wheel of Dharma, um, but it's a more coarse type of selflessness. Selflessness in the sense of no, well, of course, no permanent unitary independent self, but also no self-sufficient, substantially existent self. So that kind of selflessness is included in the first wheel of Dharma. And what about the second turning of the wheel of Dharma? What do you remember about that? Rajagriha. You've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Who else has been to Rajagriha? Yeah, so um, that's the place where the Buddha started teaching the second wheel of Dharma, Vulture's Peak. And um, in the second wheel, uh, there are the Prajnaparamita Sutras, Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, where the main subject is emptiness how all phenomena are empty of inherent existence. And he also explained uh, in a more implicit way the bodhisattva's path, what a bodhisattva needs to do to follow the path and reach enlightenment. So the second, the, te the teachings in the second wheel are mainly meant for uh, Mahayana followers. Um, those who want to follow the bodhisattva's path and reach full enlightenment, Buddhahood. And then the third wheel, would you remember about the third wheel? <laughs> yeah, the place where that started is is called Vaishali, Vaishali. And um, what did he teach there? Clarification of emptiness in the first two? Yeah, so it said that the third wheel was for those who um, 
had difficulty with second wheel teachings. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, the idea of all phenomena being empty of inherent existence, that, that was too much for them. They, they couldn't handle that. And so, um, so the Buddha in the third wheel uh, made a differentiation. Some phenomena are empty of inherent existence and some are not. Um, and so it's, um, yeah, sometimes it's called this wheel of good differentiation. So that wheel is, is said to be both for Mahayana followers and Hinayana followers. Um, I was reading, it's in, I think, Approaching the Buddhist Path, where there's an explanation of the three wheels by His Holiness. And he says, included in the third wheel are some sutras that explain the clear light nature of the mind and also Buddha nature, like the Tathagata Garbha Sutra, and that those sutras are the basis for Vajrayana Buddhism for Tantra. So there's various sutras in the third wheel. So, um, yeah, so the, roughly those are the three ways of dividing the Buddha's sutras in the, in the three um, wheels. So then, um, which of these sutras are definitive and which are interpretable? So according to Svatantrika, the first bullet point says, the sutras of the first and third Dharma wheels are interpretable. Now, what they mean by interpretable is in the parentheses. Um, there's two possibilities. One is they either can't be taken literally. Yeah. So certain things the Buddha said, you just can't take that literally. He meant something else. Or the second criteria is they mainly treat, teach conventional truths. They're mainly talking about things like karma. Um, yeah, things that are fall into the category of conventional truths rather than ultimate truth, emptiness. So sutras that either can't be taken literally or mainly teach conventional truths fall into um, our, this category of interpretable. And so they say the teachings in the first wheel and the teachings in the third wheel are both interpretable. Then Second bullet point. So what's left is the second Dharma wheel. <laughs> and so what the Svatantrikas say is that some of the sutras in the second Dharma wheel are definitive. And what they mean, what they mean by definitive is they mainly teach emptiness. So that's their criteria for definitive sutra. A definitive sutra is one that mainly teaches emptiness because emptiness is like the final mode of existence, you know, the absolute truth, the ultimate truth, the final thing you can say about anything. And so those teachings that teach emptiness um, are definitive. But some of the sutras in the second Dharma wheel are interpretable, according to Svatantrikas. An example of an interpretable sutra is the Heart Sutra. So the Heart Sutra is part of the second Dharma wheel. It's a perfection of wisdom sutra, but um, 
according to Svatantrika, it's not a definitive sutra, even though it does teach emptiness, but it can't be taken literally. <laughs> um, and the, the third bullet point explains why. Um, so you may remember, we talked about this before, that according to Svatantrika, um, they refute true existence. They say, you know, there's no such thing as true existence. All phenomena are empty of true existence. But when it comes to inherent existence, what do they say? It's about inherent existence. Remember? That things do exist inherently. Huh? On the conventional level. Okay, so they say that things do exist um, inherently on the conventional level, but not ultimately. So they say, ultimately, things are empty of inherent existence, but on the conventional level, they do exist inherently. Now, the Prasangikas would say that's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, this is what the Svatantrikas say. So they don't completely refute inherent existence. They only kind of partially refute it on the conventional, uh, on the ultimate level, but not on the conventional level. Okay, so then the third bullet point says, in second wheel sutras, again, those are mainly sutras that teach emptiness, if the object of negation is qualified by ultimately, if there's this qualification ultimately, then the sutra is definitive. But if this qualification is missing, the sutra is interpretable. Because it's not, you know, it doesn't say ultimately, it just says things are empty of inherent existence. Oh, no, 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 you can't say that because things do exist inherently on the conventional level. It's only ultimately that they are empty of inherent existence, right? So that's their view. So when it comes to the Heart Sutra, in the Heart Sutra, as we know, we recite it, some people recite it every day. <laughs> um, yeah, so early in the Heart Sutra, uh, first, Shariputra asks this question, and then Avalokiteshvara is replying to the question, and he says, Avalokiteshvara says, Shariputra, whatever son or daughter of the lineage wishes to engage in the practice of the profound perfection of wisdom should look perfectly like this, subsequently looking perfectly and correctly at the emptiness of inherent existence of the five aggregates also. And then he goes on to say form is empty, and so on and so on and so forth. So because it, here it's only saying things are empty of inherent existence and there's no qualification ultimately, they're ultimately empty of inherent existence. So then, because that term ultimately is missing according to Svatantrika, oh, that requires interpretation. We have to interpret that. We can't take it at face value. We can't, can't take it literally. Does that make sense? So it seems some of the other Perfection of Wisdom Sutras, the longer ones, like the 8,000 verse and probably the 25,000 verse and the 100,000 verse, the long Perfection of Wisdom Sutras probably do contain this qualification of ultimately. And so then the Svatantrikas are happy with that. And they say, oh, those sutras are definitive. They're, you know, they can be taken literally at face value. So it's kind of complicated. And it's much, it's kind of simpler in Prasangika. <laughs> they don't need this qualification of ultimately. So for them, all the sutras in the second wheel are definitive. 
because they mainly teach emptiness. So, like I say, this is a complicated subject, and apparently this one, one of Lama Tsongkhapa's texts, which is called The Essence of Eloquence, or sometimes it's called The Essence of Good Explanation, it's considered one of his you know, most important texts. There's a translation by Robert Thurman, I think Jeffrey translated it partially, but not completely. Um, but that that particular text is all about this this topic of definitive and interpretable. And he goes through the different Mahayana schools, Chittamatra, Svatantrika, Prasangika. I haven't studied that. I think Venerable received some teachings on that in Wisconsin, but apparently it's, it's a difficult text <laughs> to, to understand. But yeah. So maybe one day we'll have the chance to study that here. Okay, so with that, we have come to the end of the explanation of Svatantrika based on the text that um, we're using, which is by Judson Shoki Gelson. So it's a very kind of short, concise text. He doesn't go into all the nitty gritty details, but just covers the main points. So now we're ready to move on to Prasangika, the next school, but I just want to take a little side trip. Not really, yeah, it's related to this. This whole topic of findability and um, in, in, the, in the transcript of KG, KJT means Cancer Jamba Joke, <laughs> short form of Cancer Jamba Joke's name. So there was this transcript of uh, an explanation he gave to Jetson Chucky Gelson's text on tenets. And at this point, uh, before moving on to Svatantrika, he, he talked a little bit about this point of findability. And it is an important thing. It's a big thing for prasangikas, because they say, you know, things cannot be found when you search for them. But the other schools say that, yeah, you can find something when you search for it. Um, and often the question is, well, what do you find? <laughs> according, like according to Svatantrika, what is it you find when you search for something? Because we're kind of, we're mainly exposed to the prasangikas, you know, almost, almost from the beginning. And so we hear from them that, oh yeah, when you search for the self, for example, you try to find the self, you can't find it. When you search for a car, you can't find it. So we're kind of used to that idea. So then when we hear the other schools, like the Svatantrikas, you say, no, you can find something. <laughs> and it's like, so what? So he gave a bit of explanation about this um, with some examples. So, um, so he says, Svatantrikas say, when we look for something with thorough analysis, and this is analysis, not just ordinary analysis, like, you know, what is this made of and how much does it cost, but analysis that's probing into what is the real nature of this, you know? How does this really exist? Does it exist inherently, truly, objectively, and, and so on? Um, so when you're doing that kind of analysis, um, then you do find something that that's you know the whole idea of inherent existence according to the svatantrikas um inherent existence does exist 
on the conventional level. On the conventional level, things do have inherent existence, which means when you, you know, investigate them and analyze them, you will find something. Because they say if you don't find anything when you do that kind of analysis, then the, that object doesn't exist at all. Yeah? If you can't find something when you search for it, that means it doesn't exist. Okay, so he gives some examples of what Svatantrikas find when you look for something. So one example is pot. And Tibetans often use this as an example. The, the Tibetan term is bumpa. And they don't mean pot like a cooking pot, like we have in our kitchen, but rather the kind that's down in the corner there. That's um, Tibetan. <laughs> bumpa. You saw Venerable use it when, when we had the groundbreaking ceremony, and she had this, this you can call it a vase or a vase, um, with, with something sticking out the top, like feathers or a branch or whatever. So they use them in ceremonies and initiations and things. So, so that's, that's when they say pot, that's what they're talking about. So according to Svetantrikas, when you do analysis on a pot, a bumpa, then what you find is the quality of being wide-bellied, flat-bottomed, and able to hold water. Because that's the definition. That's the definition of a bumpa, of a pot. It has a wide belly, round, you know, very round middle part, flat on the bottom, and it's able to hold water. So that's the definition of a pot. So what they're saying is, if you analyze, you search into a pot, this is what you will find. You'll find the definition of a pot, these qualities of a pot. And then the second example he gave was product. So that's another common term. Product is something that's produced. Um, so our bodies are products. Our, the table is a product. A car is a product. So anything that is produced or that comes into existence from causes and conditions is a product. So when you analyze product, what you find is production by causes and conditions. Yeah. So that's like, the, I guess, the essential nature and uh, essential existence of a product produced from causes and conditions. And then the third example is person. So that's each and every one of us is a person and all other beings are persons. So when you analyze a person, what you find is the mental consciousness. So that's what this school says, um, the, the mental consciousness, because it's the mental, it's mainly the mental consciousness that goes through time, especially from one life to the next. And karmic seeds and propensities and so on that we accumulate in one life are carried on the mental consciousness to the next life and then become the causes for the experiences of that person in the next life. So, yeah, that's the essential nature of a person. So those are just some examples of what the Svatantrikas say you will find if you do analysis of an object. And the, and the next bullet point says, if we did not find the object, we didn't find something when we do this kind of investigation, then it wouldn't exist.
So it seems like they're they were afraid to go where the uh, prasangikas go, <laughs> which is probing further and deeper and finding nothing. Nothing can be found. Because then, oh, that means nothing exists. That's nihilism. We don't want to go there. That's scary. That's yeah, that's bad, a bad place to go. So it's, it seems like that, you know, that they feel we have to find something in an object in order to say it exists. And then um, the last point says phenomena are findable through analysis because they exist from their own side. They exist inherently and they exist. Oh, something's missing there. By, it should be a by by their own characteristics. So this is what they assert about phenomena, that they exist from their own side, that they exist inherently, and that they exist by their own characteristics. And yeah, the other schools as well. All the schools besides Prasangika um, have similar assertions that things exist inherently. And it's only, um, Prasangika that say otherwise, they refute inherent existence. They're the only schools that the only school that says that there's no inherent existence. And when you search, you do this kind of analysis into an object, you will not find anything. But that doesn't mean things don't exist. <laughs> it's not nihilism, although it sounds like it. The other schools look at the prasangikas and think, you guys are nihilists. You're, you're, you're asserting non-existence of things. That's crazy. How can, you, how can you affirm cause and effect and the path to enlightenment and all these things? So, yeah. So now we're ready to move on to the prasangikas. Any questions about Svatantrika before we move on? When they say they find the mental consciousness, what do they mean? Like a, a moment of it, or the whole continuum, or what's this thing that they're finding? I don't know, but it's probably the continuum, the continuum of moments that just keeps going, uh, doesn't cease you know, when a person dies. I haven't looked into that. Um, I haven't heard an explanation of that. I did, you had asked a question uh, some time ago about illustration, when they say the illustration of a person is like the mental consciousness. So I did some investigation into that, and I will share what I came up with, although it's not conclusive. <laughs> it just leads to more questions. I'll share that later when we get to um, that part in the Prasangika about what they say is the illustration of a person. So then I'll pull that slide out. But yeah, it's it's not something I feel completely comfortable about when they talk about this kind of thing. Like the illustration of a person is the mental consciousness, or when we search for a person, we find the mental consciousness. Still have a lot of questions about that. So, but just roughly what I understand is that um, according to Buddhist teachings, 
there's karma and there's rebirth and so the karma a person creates in one lifetime will go with them into the next life and into even thousands of lives and will eventually ripen and bring some effect so you have to explain that somehow within selflessness while still saying there's no uh, permanent unitary independent self and there's no self-sufficient substantial existence self but there's still some kind of person conventionally person that goes from life to life and creates the karma in one life and experiences the result in another life so they have to come up with some way of explaining that what is that person so i think that's my understanding is that's how this that kind of topic comes up what is the person that creates karma and then experiences the result so if those who say it's the mental consciousness it would have to be more than just one moment of mental consciousness it would have to be a continuum of moments because that you know moves through time and carries i mean this is a very gross understanding of what they're talking about but that's this as much as i can understand it ready to jump into prasangika <laughs> it's kind of timely because um geshe geshe yeshi lundrup be coming in October and teaching continuing to teach illumination of the thought which is you know from the prasangika point of view so um, the more we can understand about the prasangika their tenets their views then that'll help us with those teachings okay so madhyamaka prasangika this is the last of the schools and it's considered the highest school at least yeah, i think most tibetan um, schools regard it as the highest the most accurate so um there's a definition here this is the definition from um jetson shuki gelson's text but if you read other texts like this one you know they have maybe a slightly different definition so don't think that this is the one and only definition that everyone agrees with but it works so the definition of a madhyamaka prasangika a person who follows that is a madhyamika a madhyamika person who is a who holds madhyamika tenets who by means of asserting mere other approved consequences, does not accept true existence even nominally. So I'll explain that as well as I can. So the term prasangika, when that's translated into English, uh, comes out as consequentialists. So many teachers and writers use that term instead of prasangika so they call this school the consequentialists and um prasanga prasanga the sanskrit term is the term for a consequence and consequence um so a consequence is a certain way of arguing when you're in debate when you're doing uh, debating with another person and you're trying to uh, point out a mistake and an error in their assertions 
you can use a consequence. So all schools actually use consequences, not only the prasangikas, but the prasangikas say that um, it's possible to only use a consequence, just throw a consequence at an opponent, and that will be enough for the opponent to realize the error of their views and gain a correct understanding of what you're trying to prove. Um, I'll, I'll explain more about that in a minute, but um, yeah, the reason they're called consequentialists is because um, they believe in using consequences to prove um, hidden phenomena such as emptiness of inherent existence and also uh, subtle impermanence. So that's their preferred mode of debating. And, and then the definition also says they do not accept true existence even nominally. Nominally is another way of saying conventionally. So this uh, distinguishes them from the Svatantrikas, the previous school, because they, well, here it says true existence. And according to the Prasangika, true existence is the same as inherent existence. They don't make any differentiation between true existence and inherent existence. And so they don't accept true existence or inherent existence at all, even nominally, even conventionally. Okay, so now back to this thing about consequences. Um, so they believe that all phenomena are empty of inherent existence, and they want to prove that to others because as long as anybody believes in inherent existence and holds on to inherent existence, they will be stuck in samsara. They will remain in samsara. That's the root of uh, samsara and all the suffering is the conception of inherent existence. And so out of compassion uh, for sentient beings, they want sentient beings to realize that things are actually empty of inherent existence. There's no such thing as inherent existence. And so the way that they um, do this, the way that they prove emptiness of inherent existence, is by using um, consequences that it says um, the second line mere other approved consequences so what that means is it's a consequence that is acceptable and appropriate for the other person they don't just walk into the supermarket and start throwing consequences at the people in the supermarket because that probably wouldn't have much effect so it has to be a person the opponent has to be a person whose mind is ready to be able to make use of this consequence. So let's just say, for example, um, there is a person who, um, who accepts that things, for example, a table um, is dependent arising. They accept that the table arises from causes and conditions, and it's made up of parts. So they're convinced that the table uh, is dependent, a dependent phenomena. But then they say, oh, but the table is inherently existent. Yeah. So they're um, believing in and asserting inherent existence. And so then a consequence you can say, you can throw at them is, 
It follows that the table does not depend on causes and conditions because it exists inherently. So you're taking their own assertions. On the one hand, you know, thinking that the table is dependent on causes and conditions, but then on the other hand, saying that it's um, inherently existing or truly existing, putting those things together, because those are contradictory. According to you, according to the Prasangikas, those two things are contradictory. Something cannot be both dependent on causes and conditions and inherently existing. It's contradictory. And so you throw that consequence to them, and hopefully, if their mind is ready, they will have a light bulb going off and realize, oh, oh, the table doesn't exist inherently because it depends on causes and conditions. Does that make sense? Let me give you, a, I, I thought of an ordinary consequence that might, <laughs> might help you understand how consequences work. Um, this is an example that might happen here in the Abbey. Let's say there's one of the Abbey residents that you, you know this person is helping Venerable Longcell get her green card. You're working for your, you're trying to get a green card. Okay, so you know this person is helping Venerable Longcell get her green card. And then one day you hear that person say, oh, all the residents of the Abbey are United States citizens. And you can see there's a contradiction there, right? If all the Abbey residents are, are uh, U.S. citizens, nobody has to get a green card. Okay, so then you could throw a consequence to this person. I mean, we don't normally do this probably, but <laughs> you could say to this person, oh, so that means you no longer have to help Venerable Lumsell get her green card because she's a U.S. citizen. <laughs> and the person will, oh, oh, hopefully they'll, you know, that will lead them to understand that they made a, a mistaken um, assertion <laughs> saying everybody in the Abbey is a citizen. So that's kind of a dumb, maybe, example of, of a consequence where you're, you're taking the other person's ideas, which are actually contradictory. There, there are two things they, they are saying or two things they believe in that are contradictory, and they don't seem to see the contradiction there so you're trying to point out this contradiction and you do it by throwing a consequence if you say x then y you know that's the kind of formula another dumb example <laughs> let's say um let's say you hear somebody say that they're going to drive to spokane at nine o'clock and then a little while later, you, you hear them say that they're going to start cooking lunch at 9.30. And so you say to them, I see. So you're going to cook lunch in the car driving to Spokane? <laughs> Something like that. Okay. So we usually don't talk like this in daily life. But this is the idea of a consequence. And that's what the... Um, the pressing geekas like to use to um, help their opponents understand emptiness or other types of hidden phenomena. Okay, so examples. Oh, not yet. No, sorry. Yeah. So number two. Um, yeah. So each of the 
in Jetson Chucky Gelson's text, there are like seven points for each of the schools. So the first one is a definition. The second one is examples of uh, prasangikas. So Buddha Palita and Chandrakirti and Shantideva, these are examples of prasangikas. So some of these names should be familiar to you, especially Shantideva. You've been studying Shantideva's text for a long time now. And Chandrakirti, um, we've been studying, well, with Geshe Yeshilundra, we've been studying Lama Tsongkhapa's commentary to Chandrakirti's text, um, uh, Supplement to the Middle Way. And then up there we have the, that quotation, that beautiful quotation from Chandrakirti about the three types of compassion. And Buddha Palita, not maybe not so famous. Have you, do you, have you heard anything about Buddha Palita? Anything come to mind? <laughs> he actually came before Chandrakirti. He came shortly after Nagarjuna. I don't know how much after Nagarjuna, but anyway, after Nagarjuna, before Chandrakirti. And he wrote a text um, which was just published last year, a translation of his text um, published last year. It's called Buddha Palita's Commentary on Nagarjuna's Middle Way. I think that's that might be the only text that he's written. It's the only one I've heard of it. I think His Holiness has taught it. So it's a commentary to Nagarjuna, and it's you know he's considered to explain Nagarjuna in the Prasangika way, as opposed to the Svatantrika way. So he's considered a Prasangika. Okay, so then. Uh, Number three, etymology um, of the term uh, prasangika. So the reason Buddha Palita is called a prasangika or consequentialist is because he asserts that an inference realizing a thesis can be generated in an opponent's continuum merely by stating a consequence of the opponent's assertions. Okay, so this is typical of the prasangikas. They believe that just by stating a consequence, kind of throwing a consequence to an opponent, uh, and the consequence points out a contradiction in the opponent's position, that that enough, maybe not in every case, but in some cases, it's enough in order for that opponent to have an inference realizing a thesis. For example, they, they can have the inference realizing that um, uh, a person is empty of inherent existence, or any object is empty of inherent existence. So an opponent can gain that um, realization, inferential realization, just by throwing a consequence. Mm -hmm. So something that I found confusing about this is that it seems like there's kind of two different ways of explaining what prasangika is. There's this definition in terms of consequence, but then there's the idea that it's explaining Nagarjuna in a different way than the Svatantrikas did. And those seem to be different 
different things. So I, this is something that I'm confused by. Is it? <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but it just seems like these are two separate things that are somehow now the same definition. Yeah, I mean, in Jeffrey Hopkins' book, um, Meditation on Emptiness, mm -hmm. there's a very lengthy section going into the history. <laughs> I tried to I tried to read it one day, and it's very difficult, and it's also very long. But he's kind of explaining the history. So first, there's Nagarjuna, mm -hmm. and he wrote a number of texts. The most famous of which is um, the Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah, something you just call the root wisdom. Anyway, that text, a uh, very important text. And in that text, of course, he sets out the Madhyamaka position in general, Madhyamaka, that thing, all things are empty. And, and then um, one of the first commentaries, maybe the first, I don't know. No, I guess Aryadeva probably came after um, Nagarjuna. But then, not too long later, was Buddha Palita. So Buddha Palita wrote a commentary called Buddha. Apparently, the title of the text is only Buddha Palita. <laughs> so you translate that as Buddha Palita's commentary to Nagarjuna's Middle Way. And in Buddha Palita's commentary, he, I'm trying to remember now, yeah, he he actually set forth the Prasangika view. I'm not sure if he actually explicitly said it's enough just to give a consequence to an opponent. Just just using a consequence is enough to show an opponent their mistaken views. I'm not sure if he actually explicitly said that or not. But then after he wrote his text, Bhava Viveka, um, who I think was contemporary with Buddha Palita, these were both about the same time, he disagreed with Buddha Palita and he wrote his famous text, which started this Svatantrika. Uh, I forget the name. Blaze of Reasoning? Huh? Blaze of Reasoning? Yeah. I'm not sure if that's been translated. Has anyone? Anyway, so apparently in his text, he, he disagreed with Buddha Palita. And he put forth, I think my understanding is, he put forth the assertion that it's not enough just to use a consequence you have to use a reason a valid reason um, and he also like if you analyze what he's saying he's saying that this valid reason is inherently existing mm -hmm. it's, it's you know it's i can't remember it's it's above my head to fully understand what he's saying but it's by analyzing baba viveka's writing that they come up with the idea that Svatantrikas assert inherent existence, and they say that the syllogism, like the three parts of a syllogism, the subject and the thesis and the reason, are all inherently existing. So this seems to be what Baba Viveka is putting forth, and um, and this is you know separated out and called this is the Svatantrika position, and he's the founder of the Svatantrikas. Then. Chandrakirti comes along and saves the day. Um, he defends Buddha Palita. <laughs> um, he disagrees with uh, Baba Viveka and defends Buddha Palita. And so Chandrakirti is actually credited with founding the Prasangika school because even though 
Buddha Palita had already kind of put forth the Prasangika school. It was Chandrakirti who differentiated it from the Svatantrika approach. He's the one who clarified the difference between Prasangika and Svatantrika. And there's a lot of discussion even about these names, like the terms Svatantrika and Prasangikas, because I don't think any of these people said, I'm a Prasangika. No, I'm a Svatantrika. I don't think that kind of terminology was used when they were alive and writing their texts and so on. It was it was used later by, I, I'm not even sure if in India, I can't remember now, in India it was they were used or it was only in Tibet, the Tibetans just trying to make sense of this vast array of different texts saying different things that they may have been the ones who you know, called this group Prasangika and this group Svatantrika. So that's just really rough. But if you want to know the details, then I can show you where it is in, in Jeffrey's book. It's it's complicated. That's all very complicated. Um, so, yeah, so I think both things are true. The things you asked, both are true. Yeah, there is a way of differentiating those two schools based on how they understand the process of debate and generating an inference in an opponent's mind or in one's own mind as well you know because sometimes you're just doing this on your own in your meditation arguing with yourself you know <laughs> things don't exist truly yes they do so you know, <laughs> trying to gain that inferential understanding of emptiness in your own mind yeah, and not having studied debating myself, not having, you know, got into depth with that, it's it's also difficult, all the different language and quite a complicated thing. Okay, so then, where are we? Okay, so yeah, um, this is just um, giving some of the synonyms of inherent existence because um, this is a very complicated <laughs> thing when you come with all these different terminology and who agrees with what and so on and so forth. So according to Prasangika, all of these terms are synonymous and they are all to be refuted. They, Prasangikas refute, reject, negate all of these things starting with inherent existence and true existence uh, is, is just another way of saying inherent existence so they say those two terms are synonymous and then existence from its own side existence by way of its own characteristics substantial existence subjective existence ultimate existence existence as its own reality this is just a partial list. There's one whole page in Jeffrey's book, Meditation on Emptiness, that gives just, I don't know how many <laughs> different synonyms of inherent existence, the different ways in which inherent existence is stated or expressed in, in the text. So it is important to understand this because, for example, the last school we looked at, the Svatantrikas, um, they refute or reject only some of the items on this list. Do you remember which ones? Which of these do they reject? Do they refute? 
True existence. Substantial existence. Which one? Substantial. No, no. Ultimate existence, mm -hmm. second to the last. And the last one too, existence as its own reality. That isn't a very common term. But according to Svatantrika, when they, the object of refutation, what they are refuting is true existence, ultimate existence, existence as its own reality. So those three, they say those three are synonyms. Those three are all synonymous and they are all objects of negation. So that's what they refute, but they don't refute the others. <laughs> they don't refute inherent existence. They say things do exist inherently, at least mm -hmm. conventionally. And the third one, existence from its own side. Oh yes, things do exist from their own side. And they do exist by way of their own characteristics. They do exist substantially. They do exist objectively. Um, so, yeah. And then the other schools as well, they would have their, um, their own list of the things that they refute or reject and the things that they don't. So this is one of the most difficult things in um, studying tenets is all these different terms and who accepts what, who rejects what, and even the way they're explained, how they're explained. There was this chart that I made copies of. You're welcome to take, to keep it, um, that gives some of these terms, not all of them, but some of them, and then how, how they're explained by different schools, mainly the Chitta Mantra, the Svatantrika, the Prasangika. I can never remember it. I always have to look at a chart to remember. Except inherent existence. That one's um, because we talk about that one so much. So, yeah, you, you can have a copy of these slides and then use that as a reference. So, um, all of these terms are things that are refuted, rejected, negated by um, Prasangikas. And later we'll get into what they actually mean. What is their object of negation? So let's move on and do a little bit more. Okay, so the fourth point is the mode of asserting objects. Um, and objects are, that's another term for phenomena, existent things, or whatever exists as an object. And there's different ways that objects can be divided. So one way here is into hidden and manifest, hidden objects and manifest objects. This is actually something we find in Lorik as well, the study of mind and mental factors. So it's not exclusive to the Prasangikas. And the way this the way things are divided here into these two groups is according to how an ordinary person, not a Buddha, not an Arya, but just ordinary people like ourselves who don't understand emptiness, who don't realize emptiness, how we know objects. Um, what what is required for us to know or to realize an object. So hidden objects, these can be realized by ordinary persons only in dependence on a sign or a reason. 
So examples are the impermanence of sound or the emptiness of true existence of sound. Okay, so we can know sound easily. We can just hear sound with our ear consciousness. But to know the impermanence of sound, this is the subtle impermanence, how sound is changing moment by moment by moment. It doesn't last more than a moment, and it ceases and gives rise to the next moment. So the, the subtle impermanence of sound or any object, that's a hidden phenomena. And, and, and in order to know it, to realize it, we need a sign or a reason, such as the classic example. Sound is impermanent because it's produced or because it's a product. Whatever is a product, whatever is produced by causes and conditions is impermanent. Sound is produced by causes and conditions, therefore it's impermanent. So when, you know, you have a sign, but you know, just hearing that isn't enough to get a realization of impermanence. So we need to really think about it and analyze it. And eventually, at some point, we'll get a, a realization, an inferential realization of impermanence. So those are hidden phenomena, hidden objects. And then the second is manifest. And those are things that can be ascertained by ordinary persons through the force of experience without depending on a sign. So mainly it's like our senses. Our five senses can just directly know manifest phenomena, like examples here, a table or a car or a body, sound, smells, and so on. So we don't need a sign. We don't need a reason in order to know those objects. Just know them directly with our senses. So this is, I think this isn't any different than what the other schools would say. But the last point, last bullet point says, um, directly perceivable Munsun in Tibetan and manifest Mungir are mutually inclusive or synonymous. So this is kind of, well, this is different. This is something only the prasangikas say. So this term that I'm, that here it's translated as directly perceivable is the term that we normally translate it as direct perception. So you may remember when we were talking about different kinds of minds and one type of mind is called a direct perception or a direct perceiver, like you know, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so on and so forth. So it's a certain type of mind that is able to perceive an object directly. It's non-conceptual, and it also has to be non-mistaken. So the definition of a direct perceiver is a non-conceptual, non-mistaken mind. So that's ngunsum, the term ngunsum usually refers to that. So it's a mind, it's a consciousness. But the prasangikas use that same term, munsum. I mean, they do use it for minds. They, they do talk about minds that are direct perceivers, but they also use it for objects of minds, objects that can be directly perceived, like a table or like sound. So um, anyway, this was in the text, and it probably will come up later. It might come up later. So just to 
you know, put that away in your mind, <laughs> that this term munsum for the prasangikas can refer to objects, manifest objects, not hidden objects, manifest objects, as well as to minds that directly perceive. So I wasn't sure how to translate it, but directly perceivable is one way, one possibility, rather than calling it direct perception, because it, saying direct perception wouldn't be appropriate here. Because direct perception always means mind, but they're using it for non-minds as well. Does that make sense? So this is a, a unique position of Satantika, of Prasangika. Okay, so now let's just start a little bit on the next topic, which is the two truths. So this is another way of talking about objects. Objects, phenomena, things that exist, can be divided into the two truths. So this is what we've been looking at all along with all the other Buddhist schools. And so we start with conventional truths. <laughs> We're not going to get through this today. This is really complicated. Um, so the definition of a conventional truth, according to the Prasangika, is an object found by a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality and with respect to which a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality becomes a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality. Um, so that is a complicated definition, and there's a reason for it. Um, and, and also the reason why I put some of it in italics, the second part of the definition is in italics, is because that's kind of optional. If the reason, the reason for stating the definition in this way is because of Buddhas. Buddhas, minds, um, omniscient minds, they know everything. They know all conventional truths and all ultimate truths. And so if we take into consideration the Buddha's minds, then we have to have a complicated definition. And if we leave aside Buddha's minds and we just talk about non-Buddhas, everybody except a Buddha, then all we need is the first part of the definition before the italics. First part of the definition is an object found by a valid cognizer distinguishing a conventionality. So that's good enough for everybody except a Buddha. And, and to understand that, down below, uh, there's two kinds of valid cognizers, VC for short. Um, there's conventional valid cognizers and ultimate valid cognizers. So conventional valid cognizers are valid cognizers. They're minds that distinguish conventionalities or conventional truths, like you know, people and cars and trees and mountains and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, conventional valid cognizers are minds that know or realize or experience conventional things. And then the other ones are called ultimate valid cognizers, and those are valid cognizers that distinguish ultimate phenomena, ultimate phenomena being emptiness, emptiness. So Conventional truths and ultimate truths, or emptinesses, are different kinds of objects that are known by different kinds of minds. So you have different minds that know these different objects. Um, 
And conventional valid cognizers are, well, the way that term is translated, sometimes it's translated as a, a, a obscurational mind, <laughs> because, um, like for example, us ordinary beings who don't have any experience of emptiness, when we are looking at people and cars and tables and chairs and so on, um, these are conventionalities, conventional truths, and the way we see all these things is mistaken. Um, they appear to be inherently existing. Everything we see appears to be inherently existing, even though they're not. Inherent existence is completely false. But still, because of ignorance, things appear inherently existing, and we buy into that. We believe in that. We don't know any better. So, um, so our conventional valid cognizers um, are faulty in a way <laughs> because they see things as inherently existing, even though they are not. But Buddhas, Buddhas also have conventional valid cognizers, um, although a Buddha's valid, a Buddha's conventional valid cognizers don't see things in a mistaken way. They don't see things inherently existing. They see things as they are, as empty of inherent existence. So it's not only ordinary beings, ignorant beings who have conventional valid cognizers, but Buddhas do as well. So, um, and then with ultimate valid cognizers, the other one, we don't have those, at least I don't, um, to have the ultimate valid cognizer, one needs to learn about emptiness, meditate on emptiness, and gain a realization of emptiness. And so when you have a realization of emptiness, especially the Arya's direct realization of emptiness, that is an ultimate valid cognizer. That sees emptiness, perceives emptiness, ultimate truths, ultimate reality. Um, so, so then going back to the definition of a conventional truth, a conventional truth is what is found by a valid cognizer that distinguishes a conventionality, or a simple way of saying it is a conventional valid cognizer. So that's how conventional truth is defined. It's what is found by that type of mind, a conventional valid cognizer. And a conventional valid cognizer is a mind that, that sees a conventionality. It seems, seems to be kind of a roundabout way of doing it. But anyway, that's how they define it. And then the second part of the definition, we, yeah, I think I'll have to leave it for next time because it's, it's a little complicated. So that's when you consider a Buddha. Because a Buddha's mind, each moment of a Buddha's mind, every single moment, every single instance of a Buddha's mind, sees all phenomena. It sees all conventional truths. It also sees all ultimate truths. So when it comes to a Buddhist mind, um, you can say every moment of a Buddhist mind is both a conventional valid cognizer and an ultimate valid cognizer. And so, yeah, I, even for myself, this is hard. I think I'm going to have to leave it till next time. <laughs> and I did know this once, and I could explain it once, but yeah, I have to go through it again. So we'll leave that for next time. But just for now, um, to keep it simple, um, 
the difference between conventional truths and ultimate truths is ultimate truths are emptinesses, emptiness of true existence or inherent existence. Everything other than emptiness is a conventional truth. So that's a simple way. But when it comes to the definitions of these two truths, then it gets more complicated because of the Buddhist mind. Okay, so we'll leave it there for today. I'm sure that's enough for you to do <laughs> until next week. Okay, so let's finish by dedicating the merit, the positive energy, coming together, generating a positive motivation, and then listening to these teachings about the different schools of philosophy, explaining the way things exist, and helping us understand how things do exist so that we can clear up our ignorance. So we did this with the intention of becoming enlightened to help all sunny beings. So this is a very worthwhile thing to do and we've definitely created a lot of merit. So let's dedicate this merit to that same goal of becoming a Buddha. May this energy we created help us get enlightened as quickly as possible so that we can help all other sentient beings reach enlightenment as well. Due to this merit may we soon attain the awakened state of Guru Buddha that we may be able to liberate all sentient beings from their suffering. May the precious Bodhi mind, not yet born, arise and grow. May that born of no decline, but increase forevermore.